Right now, what we're going to look at today is chapter 21 and chapter 22, some portions of that. The title of today's message is uh, So Close Yet So Far, that will make sense as we get into it. Um, But I want to kind of start off with a question of, have you ever thought of something or been so close to something, and yet the reality is you've completely missed it in its entirety? In other words, you may have been on this path where you think that you're hearing from God, or you're in this right relationship, or this right path, or right vicinity, and then before you know it, maybe some new information comes in that shows you you are actually not on the right path, you're actually on the completely wrong path completely misguided, misdirected. In a lot of ways, that's what is playing in many ways over and over and over again in the story we see in the book of Acts. And so the people that are constantly in that path are actually those that should be in the path of God. Like, for example, the Jewish people in the book of Acts should be the ones that have wholeheartedly embraced their Messiah, their, their Savior, their King, Jesus. And yet, unfortunately, they're the very ones that have rejected Jesus. So we see this ongoing narrative take place, cycling through over and over again. And so what we see is God, rather than turning his back on the people of Israel, he expands Israel. He doesn't uh, exclude them. He actually expands Israel. So Israel begins to grow to include, to bring into its family people that have nothing to do with Judaism. We call those Gentiles or non-Jews, pagans in some of your translations actually might say. So the book of Acts is this ongoing story of telescoping narratives beginning in the book of Jerusalem or beginning in the story of the city of Jerusalem in the book, um, telescoping all the way out to the city of Rome. So the book of Acts starts in this small area of Israel and then at the very end, goes all the way to Paul, one of the main characters in the story, uh, sitting in a prison cell in the center of Rome, awaiting his opportunity to share the gospel with a bunch of non-Jewish people that will hopefully become part of this global family that God is making. So in short, this is it. You see this ongoing series of people missing the big e on the eye chart, missing the very purposes of God. So With that, what I want to do is I want to begin to read the story because the whole story, it's going to be a lengthy portion that we'll be looking at here today. And I'll try my best to kind of outline it for you so that you don't fall asleep. But there's a lot of ground to cover. And the way I want to break this down today is basically one big story that actually goes to the very end of the book. But we're only going to break down uh, two chapters from 21 on into 22. We'll look at basically three main movements that are happening in the passage. So the first movement we'll take a look at, verses uh, 17 and 26, is Paul's arrival at Jerusalem. So in case you notice that these are all literated, that was not necessarily by purpose. It just happened that way. I'm not necessarily that creative. But um, uh, So we'll look at Paul's arrival in Jerusalem and the story that goes along with that. Paul's arrest at the temple, which is number two, uh, verses 27 and 40. And then finally, we'll see Paul's address to the Jews or the people that he's going to be addressing at the very end of this particular narrative Uh, basically from chapter 22, almost on to the very end of the chapter, but we'll kind of stop just shy of finishing up that chapter. So there you go. Those are the three main movements that we'll look at. So what I want to do is we will basically just jump right into the story. So uh, the way I want to prep you for this is to just sit back and enjoy story time. Story time from Pastor B. All right, that's it. We're reading the book of Acts. And uh, so just listen to it. Think about it as Luke, the narrator, who's Telling us this incredible story, just listen to it, pay attention to it, be aware of those, uh, those movements, 
And uh, before we jump in, let me pray, and we'll ask God to open our hearts so we are doubly engaged, all right? So Jesus, thank you for your love that meets us here. God, that we're not far from you. Uh, You are near us, Lord, that you call us to turn to you. And so, God, we ask you right now that you would help our hearts, our emotions, our imagination to be in the very same place as our body. God, that we'd be completely present to receive from you. I pray, God, that you would help me to be able to communicate and convey the things that are on your heart as we just uh, read this story. And we understand it. God, help us to understand it. So uh, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to just move and work in this place. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. So let's uh, jump in about verse 17, chapter 21. We'll take a look at Paul's arrival into the city of Jerusalem. Now, Paul has been sort of the main character in the book of Acts for a very long period of time. Uh, we'll actually look at a little bit more in terms of his conversion. So if you're a little bit unfamiliar as to who Paul is, you'll become very familiar with who Paul is by the end of today. But in short, Paul was sort of this antagonist to this whole Jesus movement. Now he's like the number one promoter of this thing. Paul once went around trying to throw people in prison that followed Jesus. Now Paul is actually planting churches uh, in areas that were very remote and far away from the main city of Jerusalem. So verse 17 says this, as Paul comes back from this lengthy excursion, what we call maybe a missionary journey in the region of uh, Macedonia or Greece and then the region of Asia Minor, otherwise known as modern-day Turkey. Paul is planting churches. Now he kind of brings uh, the story back to Jerusalem. Paul comes back to Jerusalem, and he engages with the leaders of the church back at Jerusalem home, home base. Um, the leader of that particular community there at one point seemed to be Peter, but at this particular point, it's very clearly this guy by the name of James. Uh, we know a little bit about him, that James was probably the half-brother of Jesus, So, which means that uh, either A, yes, Mary had other kids, or B, she adopted the kids that were actually Joseph's. We don't really know for sure. The historical Catholic uh, storyline or narrative says that Mary was always a virgin, and so these would have been her adopted kids. The typical Protestant mentality would have seen that Mary had actually had kids, so she was not a perpetual virgin, as oftentimes the storyline goes. But either way, we don't really know. Nonetheless, here's James at the center of this particular movement here in Jerusalem. Paul comes back. He hangs out with these guys and says, uh, verse 17, when he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So notice the word us obviously implies that Luke, who's the writer of this, right now, is he with uh, Peter, or, or I'm sorry, with Paul in the midst of this journey or on the outside? He's obviously with. So he's writing in the context of this is us. We're together later. In the story, he's going to start writing about Paul from a a perspective in which he's no longer with Paul. He's chronicling a story about Paul. But in this particular context, he's actually with them, part of the narrative. Verse 18, he says, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. And all the elders were there present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And they all heard it, and they all glorified God. So pause real quick and just reflect upon this. So what Paul does is he comes back. So there's two things that are happening here right now. One is not mentioned because it was actually mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 19. One of the main reasons why Paul came back to Jerusalem was not only to communicate all the amazing things that were happening in all of these foreign lands, 
but to actually come back and to bring a gift. So in Acts chapter 19, we're actually told that Paul uh, went around these uh, churches that were predominantly non-Jewish. So again, to try to understand this for us in today's world, it's a little bit difficult to understand the underlying prejudices that were there, meaning Jewish people did not think very highly or very favorably of non-Jewish people. Um, And what Paul is trying to do is trying to communicate the fact that now that Jesus has come into this world, that the doors of this community have been thrown off. God has, has connected with all tribes, races, nations, nationalities, ethnicities, that there's no limit to what God is up to in this world. Now, for some Jews living back in Jerusalem who'd lived an entire life adhering to the Torah, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and have lived an entire life eating by certain codes, call it kosher, and by observing all these rites and rituals and holy days and all these other types of things, for them to think about God actually showing favor and love and welcome and embrace to a bunch of people that are pagan, that have not lived kosher, that have not ate according to particular traditional religious laws, that have never kept a holiday in their life, that don't even know what the Ten Commandments are, for God to show favor to pagans was in many ways very off-putting, to say it very mildly. But Paul was in the center of this. Like, Paul was living this. And so there's a lot of skepticism back in Jerusalem by the hardliner, very, you might want to call it, very right-wing, very conservative sect of Christians within Jerusalem. And one of the things that Paul wanted to do when he came back was he wanted to bring a gift. So in chapter 19, we're told that Paul went around from these churches that were predominantly non-Jewish. And he was asking, hey, there's a famine in Jerusalem. A lot of followers of Jesus in that outlying area, they don't have food, they need money, can you guys give money? So Paul had this massive amount of money that he was actually bringing back to them. And again, there's no mention of it here, there's just simply uh, a mention that Paul comes back, but we know that that's one of the main reasons that Paul came. And it was not that Paul was just trying to take care of their financial needs, it was, it was more of a statement. The greater statement that Paul was trying to convey was that these people that you, hardline, right-wing, ultra-conservative, very uptight um, sect of religious followers of Jesus that look at these guys on the outside and you dismiss them, they actually love you. They love you so much they've given you lots of money so that your uh, tangible needs can actually be met and taken care of. So that's, you know, again, that's one of the things that Paul does and one of the reasons why he comes back in this particular region of time. But when Paul tells them, hey, look at the amazing things that God's doing among these Gentiles. The religious leaders, at least James and his little company of friends. Now, one thing I think that's important to note here as well, because I think it's easy for us to read this particular passage and just think that every Christian in the early church were all the same. Nothing can be further from the truth. So, for example, um, in modern-day Christian circles, we have, like, what, 30,000 denominations? I think that's, like, the most recent number, which in some ways is kind of shocking, because it's like, ever since the Reformation, I mean, even before the Reformation happened 500 years ago, um, there were a handful of different versions of Christianity. In today's world, there's like 30,000 plus versions of Christianity. Now, it doesn't mean that they're all vastly different. In fact, I think if you look at the majority of them, most of them all agree on the same essential things. Jesus is king. Jesus is going to come back again. Jesus is the means of salvation. I would say that most, because there's a tendency for a lot of skeptics to look at Christianity and be like, it's so divided, it's so messed up, they don't even agree on all the main things. And the fact of the matter is, is 
it's not necessarily true because most all Christians agree on the same essential things. Where they differ oftentimes become points of contention, which is, in my opinion, kind of sad. They divide over how the church should be governed, how the money should be spent, what color carpet you should have. Sometimes ridiculous things, sometimes meaningful things, but most of the times ridiculous things. And that's just the way we are as human beings. But the point of the matter is, first century Judaism or Christianity was similar as well. There were not this monolithic community of people. So you had Hellenistic uh, Jewish followers of Jesus. These were Jews, first and foremost, that lived outside of Jerusalem, meaning they did not come back to Jerusalem every single year, three times a year for these feasts and celebrations. And then you had Jewish Christians that lived in the region of the Holy Land. So you would ask the question, did they go to the, the holidays? Of course, all the time. It was accessible to them. But what about the Hellenist ones that lived, say, like in Alexandria, in Egypt? Well, they may have never gone to Jerusalem. So how do you think the Jewish followers of Jesus saw those Alexandrian followers of Jesus? And they would probably look at them and be like, yeah, we're way more devoted than they are. Because we go to the temple three times a year. We're part of the Jewish tradition. We do all these unique things that are uh, part of our faith. But we look at maybe an Alexandrian Jewish slash Christian as, yeah, they love God, but not as much as we because of all these things that we do. Now, how do you think they would welcome Gentiles, meaning people that are far from God? They have never been circumcised. They eat bacon. They do all these things that most good Jews would never even dream of doing. And again, you have these different layers of acceptance and in some cases, flat out rejection of these variety of types of people. This is what's happening. So when Paul says, hey, here's all the amazing things that God's doing among the Gentiles, when their response comes out as they glorified God, that's awesome because they're getting it. They're getting it. They're able to enter in to the joy of God of recognizing this is what God, which is one of the reasons why we tell you guys periodically, you know, uh, we wish we can do it even more. Like, here's the amazing things that God's doing in, say, Brazil through missionaries that we have or down in uh, Rotorua, New Zealand or in parts of East Asia. And we want you to know these types of things so that you can enter into the joy or hearing about someone going to India to help free uh, women from sex trafficking. This is awesome. These are things that when you hear them, our hope would be that you'd be like, yes, this is awesome. I get to be part of this community here on the central coast that's you know in the center of this bubble of beauty like and yet we get to be part of something that's reaching and impacting lives all around the world that's that's awesome it's really cool to be be part of that so that's kind of what's happening here is that they're telling the story they're all excited they rejoice and it goes on to say in verse 20 uh and when they had heard it they glorified god and then the sentence goes on and when they said you see uh uh, here we go, sorry, verse 20. It says, and then they said, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, and you teach all the Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? So real quick question here. So who are these people I was referring to? Now, he explains it. These are probably Jerusalem or Israeli Jewish converts to Christianity. They see Jesus as the Messiah, but they they grew up 
adhering to all forms of kosher law, going to the holidays throughout the year, the three times a year that were kind of demanded of good Jews. These were, for the most part, good Jews that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. There's all these rumors that were circulating about Paul the Apostle, and he identifies some of these things. That Paul, you're going around, you're making these converts, you're diminishing the need for the Torah, you're telling people that they don't need to get circumcised. It seems like, Paul, what you're doing, according to these rumors, are going around uh, creating, creating strife and scandal everywhere you go. Now, what James is telling Paul, he's not saying as an indictment, like, Paul, we're holding you accountable to these things, but he's saying these are rumors that are circulating. You just need to know this, Paul. So you being here in Jerusalem, you're at the epicenter of a potential destructive scenario. So what they're going to suggest to Paul is that we, we think that there should be an action on your behalf that will be an act of goodwill to show these others that you're actually not this bad guy that's out to subvert Judaism or destroy uh, from the face of the earth, you know, the Torah. That's not who you are. So these, lo- these rumors are actually false. They're not, they're not real. So here's what our suggestion for you, Paul, is to do. They go on and say, in verse uh, 22, and they ask the question, what should be done? And then they will certainly hear that you have come. So we want you to do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself among, with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in that which they, has been told them about you, but that you yourselves live in observant to the law. So what they're basically saying is that there's a handful of guys, four guys that are part of our community here that are going to do a Nazarite vow, which this shows us a little bit of an interesting... Um, Ah, gosh, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe like a hybridization between Jewish custom and early Christians, early followers of Jesus. So when was the last time you took a Nazarite vow? That's what I thought. So it was interesting, though, the first century, you had these Jews. They, they, followed, they followed Yahweh, but they became followers of Jesus. So they were still living according to certain customs of Judaism. Um, most scholars believe this is some sort of like a, like a Nazarite vow. And so here they are, early followers of Jesus, still going to the temple, still taking these Nazarite vows. Why? Because they're still Jews. It's really important to know this, because we read this from 2,000 years later in foreign land, and we're like, oh, Christianity was this brand new religion that subverted Judaism. Not at all. Not at all. That's not at all what happened. Judaism was, uh, Christianity really became this thing, it was a, some would describe it as like this the completion of what God had already begun. It's the fulfillment of what God had always had in his heart and always had in his mind. That it was God inviting people to be part of this relationship with him. Now the question became very sharp and acute over the question of how should Jews live and how should non-Jews live in relationship to Jesus Christ. What Paul would actually write about a little bit later, he would say, look, if you're a Jew, if you've been raised and brought up on the customs of Judaism, raised and brought up on how to eat kosher, that's how you've lived your entire life, Paul would say later in the book of Corinthians, then continue to live that way if you want. That's fine. So the question then becomes, what if you are a non-Jew and you don't know anything about keeping kosher? Paul would basically say, you don't need to keep kosher. I mean, if you want to, that's fine. So here we go. Again, for some of you, you're like, how does this fit into my life today? Well, again, there's all sorts of applications that I'm going to go into. But the point of the matter is, what Paul would say is that, look, the main, central, most important thing is Jesus. That's the very center of all of this. It's Jesus. So if you are raised in Jewish custom and tradition, 
and you want to continue to keep some of that Jewish custom tradition because that's kind of how you've been raised in, that's fine. But don't look at those that don't keep it and be critical and judgmental of them. Because some of those people might be Gentiles that don't know anything about it. And if you are a Gentile and you choose not to keep kosher, choose not to live according to Jewish custom, don't look at those that are keeping Jewish custom as somehow being like heretics or evil or bad people. Paul's point is that to the Jews, I've become a Jew. To the Gentiles, I've become a Gentile. I've become all things to all people so I might win some. The whole point is that. This is not about how does one get saved. That's not the question. The question is how do we maintain relationship in a community where we bring all sorts of radically diverse traditions together. So let me give you another analogy. Let's say, for example, you are Jewish. You've been raised on a kosher diet your entire life. There's certain foods you do not eat, certain foods that you would never combine. Uh, There's certain ways in which you live, like on Shabbat, meaning Friday night, uh, going into a Saturday uh, depending upon what tradition or background you came from within Judaism. Uh, I mean, some Jews, even in Israel today, you can't even use an elevator because clicking that button starts a spark, electrical spark, which by definition is starting a fire. Like, that means you're working. Like, you're not supposed to make a fire on Shabbat, so you're violating Sabbath. So again, let's say, for example, you're a good Jew, you eat kosher, you come into a relationship of other people that follow Jesus, you love Jesus, you discover freedom in Jesus, and in your community, like sitting around your table at your house, everyone's eating their nice little Jewish kosher meal, and then in comes five other people with a you know, basket of food, they open it up, and it's got like bacon, lots of bacon. So the question is, uh, you're probably freaking out right now. You're like, oh my gosh, why? you're not allowed at my table. We disallow you to come and hang out and have food with us. But let's say, for example, Paul the Apostle is right there. Paul's like, well, wait a minute. Jesus has accepted you. Jesus has accepted these people. You guys need to learn to accept each other. That you are, you're separating. You're, you're dividing yourself over food. But the whole heart of it is Paul saying the thing that combines us, brings us together, is Jesus. Don't ever lose sight of that. So that's the important thing that's being played out here. So I think that's what's happening in the passage, is these leaders of the church are basically saying, here's a way for you to kind of extend like a, uh, an olive branch to show that you're not anti-Jew, you're not anti-law, you're not anti-traditions. Uh, uh, you are pro-Jesus and you're, you're pro-love. Like, so do this, and we think this will be an olive branch that will be extended. Now, uh, some... It's interesting, some Bible scholars actually think that what Paul is doing is he's compromising. Like Paul is listening to these guys, these guys are making a big issue, and Paul shouldn't have at all done this. I'm not going to make a big issue at all about that. I think Paul is doing this out of an, out of an extension of bringing some level of conciliatory love to the leaders at Jerusalem, and then they're basically trying to reciprocate by doing the same thing, by celebrating the good news that Paul brings to them. So let's jump in, let's keep reading this, and we'll keep moving on. It says in about verse 25, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been strangled or sacrificed to idols and from blood and from that which is strangled and from sexual immorality, which is the word porneia. So there's three things that basically the early church in Acts chapter 15, so there's a reference to a long time earlier that we had been there, where again the question is, how should the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, be... How should they live? And how should they be accepted? And again, if you are a Jew that has lived your whole life according to certain customs, 
some level of reconciliation needs to happen between you and these traditions that you followed and these very non-Jewish, like almost pagan people coming into your community. And so the type of um, uh, conciliation that was offered to them was they were basically saying, look, if these non-Jewish people did not eat blood, you know, which means, you know, big, red, nasty, bloody meat. There was a certain way in which they drained the blood out of it. Um, these were steps to basically say, not this is not how you get saved. These are basically saying, these are steps that if you do these, you will maintain table fellowship. You'll be able to live in a way that's not deeply offensive to your Jewish friends and family. Does that make sense? And one of those things was, was porneia. Tell them who live, for the most part, in bigger, broader Greek culture, Roman culture at large, that lives very generous with their sexuality, right? That's, right, Greco-Roman world. We can probably say, as a way of a summary, their sexuality, their sexual ethic was extreme generosity to any and all. <laughs> um, and what they're saying is don't live with extreme generosity sexually. Uh, if you want to live with extreme generosity, let it be with your money. Let it be with your time. Let it be with your love. Uh, show generous love and generosity to all, uh, but with your sexuality, uh, protect that. Don't give yourself away. And so these are the things. That these are ways to maintain relationship over communities. Uh, they're ways of living together, in other words, doing life together without each other tearing each other apart. So with that being said, uh, keep on moving. It says, then Paul took, uh, verse uh, 26 the men, and next day he purified himself along with them, and he went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification were fulfilled and the offering presented to each of them. So now we move on into the very next section, which I want to go through quickly as we read through it. We're going to take a look at Paul's arrest. So this is sort of the second movement in storyline. How are we doing? Anyone fall asleep yet? All right, good, good. It's a great story. Story time by Pastor B. All right, keep going. Verse 27 says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews of Asia, seeing him. So first of all, we're given a little bit of a clue. Who are these guys? Jews of Asia. Where are they from? Asia. What does that mean? Does it mean from like Tibet? No. Uh, Asia Minor is probably the reference to that, which means that these are people that were part of the region of uh, modern-day Turkey. These would have been people that would have heard Paul come into their temples and come in their uh, their synagogues and preach Jesus. Uh, remember, in some of those areas, they actually ran Paul out of town. So here they are at the temple. We're talking the main center of Judaism. All right, this is this is the Mecca. If you want a, a modern day comparison, this is the Mecca, the most center, most holy, most sacred site in all of Judaism. And people would come back here, and there they were in the very center from Asia. Jews from Asia, they recognized Paul, and in their mind, like that's that guy. That's the guy that started a commotion and put us down and seemed to be uh, attacking Judaism and bringing uh, non-Jewish people into his home. This guy is a heretic. We've got to do something about him. So they recognize him. It goes on to say, in, uh, and seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and they said, uh, and they laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help us. This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place, the temple, reference to the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. Now, back in that ancient day, that it was uh, legal. It was uh, deeply scandalous 
and offensive to, in fact, it was against the law to actually bring non-Jews or Gentiles and even women into various places of the uh, temple. It's just the way it was, the very patriarchal type of uh, institution. And so what these guys are doing is they're, in some ways, they're, 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 it's a frenzy moment. They're believing the rumors. Uh, the truth is not coming out. The way that we say it in the modern-day world, it's like fake news is literally going around all over the place about the Apostle Paul. And so what happens with fake news is people believe it, and as a result of that, people become in a frenzied state, sort of a mob rule, and at some point, whenever mob rule begins to take place, you need a scapegoat. I'm just telling you this is the way our world works. So if you ever look around anywhere where there's a frenzied group of people, mob of people, at the very core of those people will be the need for somebody to pay. Somebody needs to die. Somebody needs to be lynched. Somebody needs to be hung. Somebody needs to be shot. That is, by definition, what we would call a scapegoat. By the way, that's what happened with Jesus. Jesus was scapegoated in the most horrific type of a way because he did not sync with the mindset or the ideas or the ideologies that were common within his day. So this is exact repeat to some degree of what's happening with the Apostle Paul. Verse uh, 29 says, And as they had previously seen Trophimus, he was Ephesian, uh, again a non-Jew, and they assumed falsely that he was uh, with Paul in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And when the city had stirred up and the people ran together, they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple, and once the gates were shut. So um, at this particular point, you see this idea of mob rule, they're grabbing Paul. Uh, the word that's actually used in the Greek is they seized Paul violently. So imagine taking someone from a car, ripping them out of their seat, ripping them out of their seatbelt, and about ready to just destroy them, crush them. This is exactly what's happening with Paul. And we're told an interesting little uh, detail here that Luke adds. He says, and they shut the door of the temple, shut the gates of the temple. This is, I think, Luke's way. Two things are happening here. One, he's just kind of chronicling the story of events. But I think it's another way in which he's also saying, maybe in a more subtle way, that this is also just simply shutting the door to what God is up to. This was what their hearts were doing. They were shutting themselves off to what God was up to. It's a dangerous place to be. It's a place that you and I, we have to always really be careful to make sure that we're not shutting ourselves off to what God is up to, not hardening ourselves. Uh, Like the title suggests of the message is not being so close and yet so far from what God is up to. That's exactly what's happened with these guys. They were so close to salvation, so close to redemption, so close to forgiveness and new life, and yet they were so, so far because of the hardness of the heart that caused them to shut the door. Verse 31, it goes on to say, and as they were seeking to kill him, so it tells us very clearly what their intention was. Uh, They wanted to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort, and all Jerusalem was in confusion. And he once... Uh, he at once took the soldiers and the centurions and he ran to them. And when they had saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So which obviously implies the fact that Paul had already been in the process of being beaten. And as soon as they saw these uh, military leaders come, they all stopped. Verse 33 says, And when the tribune came up and he arrested him and he ordered them to be bound with two chains, he inquired who he was and what, was to, what he had done. And some of the crowd were shouting one thing and another, another thing. And as they could not learn the facts because of the uproar, they ordered him to be brought into the barracks. 
And when he had come into the steps or come up to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of people had followed crying out away with him. Uh, very reminiscent of uh, Jesus. And in, in, in Luke's tying these phrases into this to kind of to hearken back to the narrative of Jesus that, that Paul would be following. So again, uh, Paul is a follower of Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that at some point, your life will begin to look like his life. It's not to say that Paul's life carried with it the same redemptive suffering that Jesus suffered. But nonetheless, as Jesus suffered, so Paul would suffer. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means to follow Jesus. I said this last week. It's, it's, it seems so simple, but so, in some ways, obvious. But in so many ways, it's difficult to really grasp it. Because what does it mean to truly follow Jesus? It means to follow him. And sometimes that means to follow him through suffering. And what happens oftentimes when we suffer and hard things happen in our lives, we oftentimes are shocked by it. We're like, wait, what? I thought I signed up for heaven. Instead, I got hell. Like, this is horrible. Like, the fact of the matter is, no one said following Jesus is going to be easy. In fact, if we believe that, we believe the false narrative. Because following Jesus involves being in a world that is, for the most part, hostile to life. Darkness is hostile towards light. Lies are hostile to truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus is life. Jesus is light. All of these metaphors and images that the Bible describes of Jesus, this is who he is. As followers of Jesus, we are, we are called. We are called to follow truth as opposed to lies. Follow light as opposed to darkness. Follow life as opposed to death. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you're playing around, you're flirting with death, with darkness, and lies, you're confused at best. At worst, you may be really lost. You need to think about the course that you're on. Because to follow Jesus means to truly follow Jesus. And this is what's happening here, is that Paul is following Jesus. Luke is causing us to remember these were similar steps to what happened with Jesus. So, as we continue, as we wrap it up with this last little movement, I want to just make a real quick statement because we're told about there's a, the tribune that comes on the scene. Later in the story, Luke actually tells us what his name is. In chapter 23, verse 26, we're told that this guy's name is Claudius Elysius. Um, it's interesting because in the book of Acts, there's three Romans, three non-Jewish people that are actually friends of this Jesus movement. Um, first, we're introduced to a guy by the name of Sergius Paulus earlier in the life of Paul. Then later, we're told about this guy by the name of Cornelius. Uh, we referenced him a little bit earlier. The idea is that this was a, a, a non-Jewish, God-fearing guy that probably followed Yahweh but stopped short of one of the major um, actions that you would be done in order to enter into full Jewish uh, life, you know what that is? You guys know what that is? What's the one? If you're a dude, and the one, yeah, circumcision, yes, yes. So you imagine you're like this big, burly MMA, like you know, Trojan, Spartan type warrior, you know, guy working for the Roman militaristic might, and you're like, I love Yahweh, he's an amazing God, and the stories of Yahweh are amazing. They're like, You want in completely? Like, yes, I want in completely. What do you got to do to get in completely? You got to get circumcised. Like, no, thank you. I will not do that, but I will love Yahweh. So anyways, we're told uh, that he kind of had his favorable approach to this early Jesus movement. Now this guy, Claudius Lysias, um, is actually protecting Paul. He's the one that actually kept Paul alive. 
So him putting him in stocks is not to necessarily punish him. I mean, obviously he wants to interrogate him and get information out of Paul. But he actually rescues Paul from this angry mob that's about to kill him. So Luke's spinning the story so that as we're reading this, in our minds we're beginning to realize like, wow, the people that were supposed to be the friends of God, Jews, seem to be the ones that are pulling away from God and the ones that were far from God seem to be the ones that are coming near to God. And it's Luke's way of spinning this story for us to realize like God's kingdom is breaking in the most unexpected places. That's what God does. So right now, think about this. Where are areas in your life right now where you're like, I would never, never, never expect God to show up? Be careful. This may be the places that God shows up. Because that's who God is. That's what God does. God begins to break in in those unexpected places. And this is what Luke is telling us about the story. So let's jump in. We'll take a look at the, uh, the final uh, idea that basically gets brought about. In fact, before we do that, let's finish up chapter, uh, this chapter in verse 37. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And uh, he said, do you know Greek? So obviously Paul's speaking in the native language, which is Greek. And the tribune asked him, are you the Egyptian who has recently stood up this revolt? So obviously it's a case of mistaken identity. He thought Paul was actually somebody different. Paul describes as, no, it's not me. I was somebody else. I'm from a uh, region of Tarsus. And he goes on to describe. So he asks this guy, he says, can I address these people? Can I talk to them? So again, these are the people that literally just beat Paul up. Paul's, I would imagine, bloodied, bruised, bruises all over his face. Who knows the condition of his physicality right now? But Paul asks this Roman tribune who just rescued him, can I talk to them? Obviously under your supervision and protection. And then uh, he assents to it and lets him to do it. And this leads us in the final uh, movement of this little story. Then we'll wrap it up. So Paul turns to the people, and this is his address. So this is actually the first of five addresses that will end up closing out the rest of the book of Acts. So there's the, the, the five, uh, aside from this first one, which is the one that we'll look at in just a moment. Um, the next one is Paul actually addresses this Jewish council later on in chapter 23, 24. And then uh, chapter 24, verse 1, Paul addresses a guy by the name of Felix. Uh, the latter three all take place in a region called Caesarea Maritima, which is along the Mediterranean Sea. It's a beautiful, amazing coastal city. That's actually nothing more than ruins right now. But at one point, it was like this like, like incredible, massive, big, beautiful uh, city along the seacoast. So Paul's going to address a guy by the name of Felix. That's uh, chapter 24. Later, he's going to address a guy by the name of Festus, same place, uh, chapter 25. Later in chapter 26, he's going to address a guy by the name of Herod Agrippa, who's uh, related to the ancient great, great King Herod, if you're familiar with him as well. So anyways, and then we kind of come to the very end of the book of Acts, and that's, and that's it. But what I want to do is I'm going to look at this address, and then we'll wrap this up with, I have one point and one point alone to make, and then, then we'll, we'll be done. You're welcome. All right. Chapter 22, verse 1, he says this. You guys still doing okay? All right? Good. All right. All right. Chapter 22, verse 1. This is how Paul starts his address. Brothers and fathers. Listen to this again. These are the people that just almost destroyed Paul's life. Beat him, perhaps inches from his death. Paul asks to speak to them. I'm sure the guard has absolutely no clue what Paul's about to say. Paul opens his mouth, and the first two words out of his mouth are the most incredibly 
dignifying words that you could ever give back to people that have done nothing but show you violence and destruction. Paul says, brothers and fathers. The story of the gospel transforms the way that we think about relationships that go sideways. Among other things, it involves salvation. Among other things, it involves being reconciled to God. But on a horizontal level, it involves how do I treat those that have been abusive to me? How do I think about those relationships with people that have been destructive to me? Or to put it another way, how do I treat my enemy? This is shocking. So, the way that first century Christians would have like, done what we're doing, for the most part, probably similar to what we'd be doing. They would just read through the entire thing. I mean, I'm reading through a very, very small thing of this. But if you would show up at a first century like, gathering, they'd crack out like 28 chapters and be like, okay, ready? We're going to read through this whole thing, maybe make some comments along the way. And that's one of the reasons why, like a few chapters ago, when Paul's preaching, some guy actually falls out of a window and dies in the middle of Paul's church service, all right? Because it's like eight hours long, all right? So the point of the matter is, is that you imagine by this time, guys would be, guys and gals would be getting sleepy listening to Paul's story, right? So whoever's reading this, they're like falling asleep, and all of a sudden, you hear this like narrative, and they almost killed him, and Paul asks to speak to him, and Paul then does speak to him, and he says, brothers, fathers, that would jolt you out of your sleep, because you'd be like, well, wait, 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 wait. These guys just about killed Paul? And Paul speaks to them with kindness and dignifying words? How's that, how's that possible? Because that's what the gospel does. It reorients our understanding of our neighbor and of our enemy. And so Paul speaks to these guys with dignifying words, and he says, I want you to hear my defense. The word defense there is the Greek word, apologia. Um, it's the word uh, that we would use for like giving a defense or you get the word apologetics from. Paul's going to give his defense. He says, uh, I want you to hear my defense. And then verse 2, he says, And when they had heard this, um, that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they all became even more quiet and they all said. So imagine, this is an audience that just about killed Paul. And Paul begins to speak to them in Hebrew. Uh, he was just thrown down Greek. Now he's like, switching up. And he's obviously a pretty smart guy. He's multilingual. So he's already smarter than probably most of us. Definitely smarter than me. But then Paul gets this captive audience. So they're listening to what Paul's about to say. There's five different ways in which Paul addresses these guys. Five things. We'll go through them really quickly. Uh, the first thing that Paul talks about is his birth uh, and his Jewish upbringing. Uh, verse 3, he describes, I'm a Jew. I'm born of Tarsus, of Cilicia. And I was brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. So what Paul wants them to understand is, I'm not just some random, come lately to this whole Judaism and Christianity type thing. Paul's saying, look, I've, I, this is all I've ever known my entire life. I was raised in the most strictest form of Judaism. He's given him his credentials. The second thing Paul addresses is his uh, Jewish zeal. He wants him to understand, I wasn't just some sort of lukewarm Jew. Like, I was absolutely zealous for the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So much so that Paul says, my zeal was so deeply committed to God that I actually sought to actively withstand anybody that threatened our movement. And Paul goes on to say, in verses 3 to 5, 
he says this, and he says, uh, I was uh, led a part of this, being zealous for God, uh, as all of you are to this day, he said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding, delivering, and bringing and imprisoning both men and women. So immediately we're already uh, awakened to the fact that women, like this is a patriarchal society. Why would you throw a woman? Because there are obviously women in the early church that were leaders, women that were part of that early church movement that were dignified, most important uh, members of this early church community. Paul's like, I'm throwing everybody in prison because this is a way in which I'm demonstrating to you my vigilance and zealousness to this way. He says, and as the high, uh, then he goes on to say, I persecuted this way to the death, binding, it says, as the high priest and the whole council of elders, they can also bear me witness that I have received letters to the brothers and I journey toward Damascus to take those uh, in, in prison and to punish them in Jerusalem. In verse six, we see kind of the third movement of this message where he begins to talk a little bit about his conversion. I'm going to wrap it up very quickly as he goes on to say, and as I was on my way and I drew near Damascus about noon, he describes this. And again, we've actually read through a couple different accounts in which Paul actually gives the retelling of his conversion. So I'm just going to summarize some of this as well. Paul describes that something unique, something profound happened where my life was transformed. I actually added up here a word of course correction. Some scholars would actually look at what happened with Paul. It's not so much as a conversion. I don't have a problem with conversion language, with, especially with regard to Paul. But the reason why some would actually describe course correction is because Paul describes himself as extremely zealous for Yahweh. So the question is, when Paul discovered Jesus, did he cease being zealous for Yahweh? No. Paul began to realize the extensiveness of Yahweh as revealed through Jesus. Did Paul slow down in his zeal at all for the things of God? Not at all. Was Paul a disbeliever of God prior to Jesus? Nope. Paul believed in God. He followed God. He was zealous for God. What happened with Paul in the whole interaction with Jesus? Well, of course, correction. Began to realize that Jesus was the fulfillment of Yahweh in the flesh. And Paul used all that zeal that he had mustered for the destruction of this Jesus movement to now promote the Jesus movement. Rather than persecuting and imprisoning followers of Jesus, he actually went around planting communities of Jesus' people. Like Paul reallocated the energy that he had for the promotion of the gospel. So Paul's saying this is all part of my conversion. I'm going to jump down and take a look at real briefly the ministry of Ananias from verses 12 to 16. He describes Ananias as a devout man, according to the law, well spoken by the Jews who live there. Why does Paul say that? Because he, he wants to give his story some level of, of credibility, right? And he's like, and there's this guy by the name of Ananias. He was a drug dealer uh, living in the port city, and he always ate a lot of pork. Like, that, that would not be the type of guy that you want to give your story credit, credibility. So Paul's like, this guy was a devout man. He was committed to God. Everybody knows Ananias as a very, very devout man. The idea is that you can go, you can go check him out yourself. Guy's credibility. People know who he is. And Paul's saying that this guy was there for me. He baptized me. He was a part of this early formation of my life. And then finally, we wrap this up with verse 17 onto the end, where Paul then begins to describe two final things that actually are what the conclusion of all this thing that kind of gets him in trouble. Then he says in verse 19, he says, uh, when I returned to Jerusalem and I was pray- praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. The word trance there is the Greek word ekstasis, which is this, uh, this, this uh, experience that Paul has uh, some translation might say trance. Paul went in this trance, whatever it was. And he says he has this incredible experience. And it says, and uh, I saw him saying to me, Jesus. And then Jesus speaks to him. He says, make haste. Get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. 
And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and I beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And Paul is basically telling the story. He says, look, I, I was one of the greatest advocates of destroying, dismantling, dismembering this early Christian community of people. And he says, I received a testimony from Jesus at this temple. Now, again, remember, Paul's standing right on the Temple Mount. He's like, look, I was right here. And Jesus came to me. And Jesus spoke to me. He says, they're not going to receive you. And then Paul says the final closing words that gets him really into trouble. And then he says in verse 21, and then he said, go, go, leave, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the phrase that gets Paul in a lot of trouble. It goes on. I'll wrap it up with these two words, two sentences. It says, up to that word, they listened to him. And then they raised their voice and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him back to the barracks to be flogged and examined. But the point of the matter is, is that this closes on this note where they are basically calling for Paul's execution simply because he makes his declaration. Not that Jesus came to him. Now, up until that point, everything's fine, and maybe people are kind of raising skeptical eyebrows, whatever. But once Paul gets to the point of saying, but because of this, God has, through Jesus, sent me to these Gentiles to announce to them the good news. At that moment, they go back into a frenzy, and they want to kill Paul. What's going on here? Why? Why is this happening? I think John Stott, he's a pastor, preacher, that had written extensively on this. He had some great things to say about this, and I'll just read it. He says this, making Gentiles into Jews was fine, so what we call this proselytization. So uh, Judaism was not um, um, against proselytiz- proselytization. There were proselytes, meaning a non-Jew looking at Jews and saying, I want to worship and give my life and my heart my mind to the living God. How do I do that? Again, like I said earlier, the process of that, of becoming from a non-Jew into Judaism would involve a lengthy process of education, learning, training, changing out your diet, and the final step, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, was circumcision. And uh, you can imagine, for most non-Jews, that was sort of like a deal breaker. They're like, okay, I'll follow Yahweh, but I don't want to do circumcision. That seems extremely painful and humiliating and whatnot. But the point of the matter is, is um, proselytization was something that happened. So making Gentiles into Jews was fine, but evangelism, making Gentiles into followers of God without first making them Jews was scandalous. And this became the big issue in the early church was, look, if a non-Jew wants to get in right relationship with Yahweh, that's fine. Let him get circumcised. Let him live according to the kosher law. Let him follow the, uh, the, the main holidays that we have. Let him enter into this binding relationship of legality of the law and all these other types of things, and we're okay with that. But what Paul was saying is that, you no, know, the way that God has shown grace is bigger beyond all of this. And then this is the way John Stott finishes this sometime. He says, for they both needed to come, uh, back up, he says, uh, it was tantamount to basically saying that both Jews and Gentiles were both equals, for they both needed to come to God in Jesus. This is the whole crux of the matter. So this is one of the reasons why there were times when Jesus would tell stories like this. He would say, look, there was a young brother who went out and squandered everything he had 
took all that his father had, and he goes out and spends it all. And he ends up in the middle of a pigsty. Again, very non-kosher. But he comes to himself, he comes back to God, gives his heart back to God, and yet that's not where the story ends. So we oftentimes think about the story of the prodigal son as being just about that guy that goes out and goes from, you know, being, you know, a guy that just lives in the most scandalous type of fashion, you know, gambling and having prostitutes and all these other types of things, listening to Justin Bieber. But the point of the matter, and then we, we forget the fact, that's not where the story ends. The story keeps going because it describes one other brother. And the, it's the older brother. The older brother, he's done nothing wrong. He's been kosher. He's lived well. He's done everything that the father has expected of him. And now the father is basically saying, enter into the celebration that my son who was once lost has now been shown grace, has been welcomed back into the fold. And the older brother is scandalized by this. Why? Because that's what grace does. Especially if we want to relate to God on the basis of my works. It's scandalous to hear that, no, 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 God does not accept you based upon how good you've performed or how devoted you are to God. God's acceptance of you is on one basis alone, Jesus. Meaning, we're all broken people, all of us. No matter how righteous you are, no matter how unrighteous you are, no matter how religious you are, no matter how irreligious you are, we are all broken human beings in desperate need of grace. This is where I want to finish with this final passage, and I'm done. Acts chapter 15, verse says this. Uh, Peter stands up, and this is out of what's called the council, uh, when they're trying to ask this bigger question. How do we respond to these non-Jewish people coming into this church if they've never kept the law, they don't eat kosher? How do we respond to these people? And then Peter responds by saying, look, I had this unique experience myself. Uh, I went to this guy by the name of Cornelius' house. He was a non-Jew. Uh, he was a God-fearer, which meant that, you know, he was this big, burly guy that I mentioned earlier that never didn't want, he didn't want to get circumcised, but he nonetheless respected God, Yahweh. And so Peter shows up at his front door, and uh, the guy's like, come on in, let's have some tea and hang out and let's chat. And Peter basically at that point is, is like, he tells him, he's like, look, normally I'm a good Jew, and good Jews don't hang out with, with, with your type. No offense, but your type, meaning people that are far from God, People that don't dress like Jewish people, that don't eat Jewish food. Like, I don't, I don't typically hang out with people like you. But God just gave me this crazy vision, and God told me to not call unclean that which God has made clean. So I'll come in <laughs> reluctantly, hesitatingly. I'll come in, and he comes in, and Peter begins a dialogue with this guy. And all of a sudden, in the midst of the dialogue, this guy, Cornelius, receives the Holy Spirit. His, the very same gift that the early church received, meaning... God has accepted him. And this is where Peter, fast forward a few years, uh, recounting this event, I'm done. He says this, then Peter said, friends, we all know that from early on, God made it quite plain that he wanted pagans to hear the message of this good news and to embrace it. And not in any secondhand or roundabout way, but straight from my mouth. And God gave them the Holy Spirit exactly as he gave him to us. He treated the outsiders exactly as he treated us. And he goes on to say, we are saved because the master Jesus amazingly and out of sheer generosity moved to save us just as he did those from beyond our nation. He goes on to make some statements on this, but finish with this point. The idea is this. You can be so close 
on a relational level, on a religious level, to God, and yet completely miss him. Some of you, I'll be really frank, some of you who've been around church your entire life frighten me the most. Because you have this familiarity with God. The idea of grace as amazing you loses its edge, loses its vibrancy, loses its deep saturation of colors. It just becomes sort of this boring reality that just gets played into the story. The reality is, is that we can be so close to something and yet so vastly far off. That seems to be what was constantly happening with these religious leaders in the early church. So the invitation is always the same, to stand back a little bit, to ask yourself, has my heart grown hardened or cold to the things of God? Has it looked at grace? Has it looked at the sheer beauty of what God has done? And does it yawn? Or does it receive the fresh invitation from God always to enter into this thing? And by way of extension, recognize that I'm surrounded by a community of people that are just as dysfunctional and just as broken as I am. And yet we, by grace, have all been accepted by this Father who loves us through Jesus, the sacrifice that he paid for us. That's what keeps our hearts level. That's what keeps our hearts in this place of of humility. It keeps us in a place where we are able to actually love our neighbor as ourselves, And by extension, to think differently even about those who have been our enemies and have been in opposition to us. It's because grace has this effect upon our hearts that transforms us. So the invitation for all of us is to pause, to reflect, and to see it. Ask God to help us see it in a new way. So I want to finish. Why don't we all stand? I'll pray. We'll finish with a song. Sing to God by way of reflection. We have communion as a way of reminding ourselves of the cross, of the bread, which resembles Jesus' broken body, and of the blood, which is to be taken by way of the cup, which reminds us that through these actions on God's behalf, we have not only been recipients of God's grace, but we've also been brought into a family that involves a meal, which involves people that may look and act nothing like us. But we're all at this table together. How do we relate? How do we fellowship? How do we love? How do we connect? And the answer, obviously, is Jesus. is the one that we look to all the time. So let me pray. Let's sing. Let's respond. God, thank you for Jesus. And right now, we respond to you.